And uh, we're going to look at this psalm now. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Psalm 46. I don't know about you, but uh, let me ask you, when you go through tough circumstances, is there a certain song or uh, scripture or maybe a saying that, that goes through your head and it grounds you and it calls you back to a place of peace? For me, over the past weeks, this psalm, Psalm 46, has been going through my head, and I wanted to look at it, at it uh, with us this morning. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Anyone felt a little bit like this psalm describes these past weeks? Well, if we have, we're not alone because God's people all through history have been through difficulties, very often greater difficulties than what we're facing now. And they've sung about it. They've sung about their fears. They've sung about their struggles. And they've sung about how they have found faith in and through hard times. And this psalm in particular uh, recounts and, and depicts vividly some of the greatest catastrophes and tumults that humanity's ever faced. I mean, first, the biggest one in verses two to three, the undoing of the cosmos, the, the collapse of the physical world itself, mountains quaking. I mean, what's more solid than mountains? What's more rock solid dependable than when you go to sleep and there's a big mountain outside your window that when you wake up, it's still going to be there in the morning. <laughs> Add to that, in Bible times, they viewed mountains as the pillars that the earth rested on and that the, 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 the mountain's tops held up the sky. And so when the mountains quake and when they fall into the sea, things are really coming apart. And when the sea rises up and roars and surges so much that it shakes the mountains, the sea is really a threat. Can you imagine? And then second in verses four to five, this catastrophe isn't as obvious. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. This is describing having your city surrounded by enemy armies and under siege. Or in this case, specifically, it's the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, which faced several notable sieges in its history, first by Assyria, then Babylon, later by Rome. And what happens when you're under siege? Well, you're, you're terrified. You, you feel dread. You, you feel cooped up and imprisoned because you are. You're uh, living on rations. And then once your water is gone, you're finished. You have no choice but to surrender or to die. Unless you have a source of water, a spring, a river inside your city. Then you can hold out a lot longer. And so in light of that, listen to verse 4 again. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Imagine a city under siege made glad by a river, a city that will not fall because God will help her. Verse 5. Interestingly, 
Jerusalem didn't actually have a spring or river in it. The closest was the Gihon Spring. And so various tunnels were dug through the ages to channel the Gihon Springs water into Jerusalem. So, so what is the river then with streams in the city of Jerusalem that the psalmist is talking about? Well, you might remember the great prophetic pictures like in Ezekiel, for example, of water flowing out of God's temple in the city of Jerusalem. And these pictures are reflecting back to Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, the place of God's presence, which had rivers flowing out of it to water the earth. It was on a mountain, evidently. Here's the point, and it's particularly powerful if you live in a desert. God's presence is where the joy is and where the life is. There can be a hostile army out there doing all they can to destroy you, but if God is with you, you're safe, you're secure, you're sustained, you're refreshed, you're alive, and even glad. The third catastrophe is in verse 6 of the psalm. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. This is war. This is political upheaval and conquest and overthrow. This is how you could think how, how Britain felt as Hitler was steamrolling across Europe with them in his sights. Or how Israel felt when Babylon or later Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus were rampaging across the ancient world, swallowing up everything in their path and leaving destruction and oppression and carnage in their wake. That's the third picture here. Nations in uproar, kingdoms falling, all these calamities. God's people have been through them all. Terrifying things, devastating things. And so what's the testimony from God's people about such times? What's their word to us that they speak to us down through history in the form of this song that we've been given to teach us to sing and to teach us to pray? It's to focus on God. It's to remember who our God is. God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. A river whose streams make glad the city of God. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Who is God? What is God like? A strong fortress, a mighty fortress, as we sang earlier. A river bringing gladness. A God who is with us. A fortress, protection and help in trouble. A river, a source of life and gladness. God with us, a personal committed presence. Let's take a look at these three. First, God is a mighty fortress, a protector, a help. God is bigger than our circumstances. God has them under control. Think about Jesus and his disciples in the boat, if you know that story. A furious storm has come up on the lake. The waves are enormous. The, the, the wind is howling the disciples in the boat, many of them who are seasoned fishermen who have plied the waters of this lake their whole life, they are absolutely terrified. But Jesus speaks to the storm and rebukes it, and immediately it grows completely calm. 
And his followers in the boat are astounded and they're terrified because they suddenly realize that Jesus, who's in the little boat with them, is more powerful even than the storm. God, our God, is more powerful than the storm, than the quaking mountains, than the surging seas, than the invading armies, than our present circumstances. How many of you have had to stop and to pause and to try to remember that over the past weeks? To remember that God looks at the nations and sees all that goes on and nothing escapes God's notice or spirals beyond God's control. Second, God is like a river bringing gladness. I remember one time driving out west with my family. I was a teenager. We were in Utah, and it was summer. It was hot. It was dusty. It was the 1980s. I think our car was probably made in the 70s. It didn't have air conditioning, and it had already broken down once, stranding us for a day in Wyoming on our way to Utah. And all around us was just gray dirt and gray rocks and gray dust and gray brush. And as we traveled, it seemed like everything had been gray for days. We'd already been through Nebraska and Wyoming, which are huge states. <laughs> it's just so much empty space, so much dreary grayness, so much seeming deadness. Parts of it looked like we were traveling across the face of the moon or something. And then I remember in Utah coming over a ridge and entering a river valley. And all of a sudden, the temperature dropped a little bit. It was green, there was color, there was life, there was a sense of refreshment, there was a town, civilization. That's what rivers are like in desert climates, like the Middle East that the psalmist lived in. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That's what God is like for his people, even in dry and desolate times, even in dangerous times like a city under siege. God is a spring, a source of refreshment, giving life and joy. Back in 2004, I was living in Canada, and um, a man in our church there lost a finger in a construction accident, just violently. A, a, a bucket, a front-end loader bucket, landed on um, the dump truck. He had his finger, on, his hand on it, and it landed on his finger and he lost his finger just like that. This guy had worked with his hands his whole life. And so losing a finger was particularly traumatic for him. Then as he was recovering, his wife began experiencing extreme excruciating pain in her back. At first the doctors told her it was spinal cancer. Later they said, no, that's not what it is, but we don't know what it is. But she was in great pain in the hospital for, for over a month. And as he would go to visit her each day, he would watch her suffer. He would, he would go and be with her. He, he wished the pain could have been his. He already hated hospitals as it was. He, he was that kind of guy. And the whole thing was, was the darkest experience that he had ever been through. One time he was reflecting on it with me, and, and he told me, he said, as hard as it had been, and he was crying by this point, he said during this time he'd experienced a closeness with Jesus that he had never experienced before in his life. 
He said, knowing Jesus in this way was such a wonderful gift that other than taking his wife's pain on himself so that she wouldn't have to bear it, he would not have had it any other way. The, the treasure of knowing Jesus in this way made it so worth it. And, and I know others of you in this congregation who have experienced the same thing. You have tasted, as I have, from the river whose streams make glad the people of God. And then third, God is a, a personal committed presence, not a far-off deity, not an impersonal force, but a king who's in your palace, in his palace, sorry, in your city, ready to fight for you, ready to marshal troops to your aid and to your defense. Now, of course, we don't live in Jerusalem like the psalmist, but like those of that city, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are in a committed covenant relationship with God. God is our Lord, our King. God has taken on the responsibility of caring for us, of protecting us, and we, in return, have pledged our allegiance and our service to God. So we can say with the psalmist, God is our refuge, our ever-present help, because we are the temple of the living God now. The most holy, the most high God dwells within us. God is within us. The Lord Almighty is with us. God is with us, and God is for us. That's what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. That's the nature of a covenant. God has pledged himself to be the defender of his people who have pledged ourselves to him. So question, if God is like a strong fortress and God is like a river who brings us gladness, and if God is personally present with us and for us, then how do we know if we really believe that? I mean, it's one thing to read it or even to preach it, but how do we know if we believe it, if we trust it? The answer is in verse 2. Verse 2 gives us some indication of whether we believe it or not. Therefore, we will not fear. Our level of fear tells us something about what our level of faith is. Lots of fear, not so much faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the psalm is calling us to a very high bar here. Listen to verse 2 again. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Really? The earth is giving way, the mountains are falling into the sea, and we are not afraid? Well, yes. If the one with you and for you really is with you and for you, and is bigger and stronger than the thing you're afraid of, then yes, you don't have to fear. Like the disciples in the boat, right? When the one in the boat with you is bigger and stronger than the storm around you, then you don't have to fear the storm. The question is, which are we looking at? Are we looking at the storm? Watching CNN or, or Fox? all day, focusing on the problems, focusing on the dangers, worrying about what if this happens or what if that happens? 
Or are we remembering, are we focusing on the one who is with us and for us? Are we getting to know God? Are we reading the Psalms, reading the Bible, thinking about what it teaches us about God? It's, it's very simple in a way. When, you, when you, your focus is more on God than it is on your circumstances, then you won't be as afraid. You'll experience greater peace. Now, question, second question. What about when bad things do happen to God's people? And, and what does it mean when bad things happen? Because they do, right? Does that mean that we don't have enough faith? Does that mean that, that we weren't obedient enough or faithful enough to God, and so God abandoned us? No, no. Well, then what does it mean? What does it mean when bad things happen? Answer? Bad things happen because God saves us through the troubles and not from the troubles. God is our refuge not from trouble, but God is our refuge in trouble. Think of the psalm. In this psalm, the mountains are quaking and collapsing, right? The sea is raging. Jerusalem is being attacked and besieged. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms are falling. There are troubles. God doesn't save us from the troubles, but God does save us through the troubles. And God is our refuge in the troubles. That's the testimony of God's people to us through this psalm. Not that there won't be troubles, but it tells us who God is for us and with us in troubles. God is not promising a smooth ride, a trouble-free life. That's America's passion. That's America's quest, but it's not God's. But God does promise to be with us in troubles and through troubles and to protect the inner core of, of who we are, to shelter and care for what is most essentially us. The best way I can think of, of trying to explain this is a story in C.S. Lewis's children's classic, Voyage of the Don Treader, part of his Narnia series. In that book, there's a boy named Eustace, and Eustace is not an attractive character. He is mean, he is selfish, he is inconsiderate, he is ungrateful, he is annoying. At one point, he's traveling with a group of people, and uh, they're on an island, and to avoid doing his share of the chores that is necessary for them to sustain themselves, he sneaks off, and uh, he winds up getting lost, and winds up in a dragon's lair where he greedily he hoards some of the, the dragon's treasure. He, he figures he'll keep it from the others, he'll keep it for himself. And his, his greedy, selfish, dragonish thoughts cause him to become a dragon himself as he falls asleep in the middle of this uh, enchanted hoard of the dragon. Well, when Eustace later wakes up and realizes he's now a dragon, He's terrified. He's lonely. He's, he's conscience-stricken. Later, his, his companions need to leave the island, and they can't take him with them in their boat. He's a dragon, after all. And so Eustace's world is coming apart. Well, finally, the night before the party is supposed to leave and will need to leave without him, Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure in the story, comes to Eustace in the dark to help. And Aslan tells Eustace, 
that Eustace has to undress, meaning to shed his dragon skin. And, and so Eustace starts scratching at his scales, but, but the tide is too thick. Uh, there are too many dragony layers, and, and so he can't do it. And so finally Aslan says, I'll have to do it. Well, Eustace is afraid, but, but he's desperate, and so he agrees. And he describes the pain of this. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. I turned into a boy again. And I think that picture of Eustace being undragoned is a great picture of how God sometimes is our protector in trouble. He doesn't spare us the pain or the loss always. Because if you're like me, sometimes what you love and what you desire and what you depend on too much begins to grow roots into your soul and become a part of you. And it can't be removed without a painful tearing so that your heart, my heart, can fully belong to God again. And I think some of that is happening to some of us now. And God allows the tearing, the the painful and, and, and violent tearing, though it may be, but God will not allow it to destroy the inner essence of who we are, but rather ultimately to release us to be who we are meant to be. Now, ultimately, sometimes that protection from God doesn't fully come in this lifetime. Sometimes people die prematurely, right? But even in death, God preserves who we are and perfects us through death to raise us again into new life. We celebrated this last Sunday, Easter Sunday. And I love the way John Chrysostom puts this. He was a famous leader of, of the early Christians in the fourth century. Once he was summoned before the Roman emperor, Arcadius, and, and was threatened, first with banishment, to which Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me for the world is my father's house. Well, your treasure shall be confiscated then, the, the emperor replied grimly. Sir, you cannot do that because my treasures are in heaven and my heart is there also, Chrysostom replied. Well, then I'll kill you, exclaimed the emperor angrily. No, you cannot, retorted Chrysostom, because my life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, Chrysostom believed that God was his refuge in trouble. The emperor could cause him trouble, could hurt him, could attack him, but the emperor could not touch the inner core of who Chrysostom was. Even death could not touch that, for God would keep him safe, even through trouble or death, into life beyond. In this life, will we have trouble? Of course we will. God's people always have. But here's their testimony. Here's their encouragement to us in trouble. God is our refuge and strength 
our ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, then in verse 8, the psalmist moves us from testimony, from confession of faith, from confession of who God is and what God is like, to prophecy, to an oracle of what the future holds. Even though verse, verses 8 and following are not in the future tense, most scholars agree that, that it's a prophecy. It begins with, come and see. Come and see the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Come and see. Look at what God will do. War has ended in that picture. Peace has returned. How will we get there? How will we get to peace? Well, it won't be easy because people don't tend to want to cooperate with God. Many people won't do things the, the easy way by surrendering their control and their desire for power and domination. And so God has to wind up bringing peace the hard way. But in the end, even though there will be trouble, there will be desolations on the earth, in the end, after the labor pains, a new reality will be born. God will bring peace to the earth, finally and fully. Safety, security, flourishing. The troubles we may experience in, in the meantime won't have the last word. The last word will be peace. No more troubles, no more tumult. Verse 10 is a famous verse, right? The most familiar translation, I think, is be still and know that I am God. But a better translation probably is, is the one that the New American Standard and some other Bibles use. Cease striving and know that I am God. Cease. Stop. This is not a word of comfort. It's a word of rebuke, actually. Cease striving. And likely it's addressed primarily to the nations, to the rulers who are at war, who are jostling for preeminence, for security, for power, for economic and political advantage. So, Ali Khamenei of Iran, cease striving. Kim Jong-un of Korea, cease striving. Xi Jinping of China, cease striving. Donald Trump, Mr. President, cease striving. So too, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. Boris Johnson, Angela Merkel, cease striving. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth.
I hold the answers that you seek. I alone will bring peace and a prosperity that will be good, not just for the billionaires, not just even for the middle class, but for all the people of the earth. What a prophecy, what a hope, what a promise to fix our eyes on and to keep in our view in the midst of trouble. Not everyone, of course, is willing to believe it, but as God's people, we do. And so we wait, and as we wait, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, even in trouble. As we close, I, I just want to suggest two ways to respond to this psalm. First, if you don't know God personally, the way that um, those who gave us this psalm did, if you don't know God as one who is a personal and committed presence, who is with you and for you, what better time to get to know God than now? Maybe a friend invited you to the service. Ask them to help you get to know God in a personal way. Or reach out to our church. Again, you can, you can um, use the email that's in the chat, info at communitybiblechurch.org. We would be happy to, to listen to you, to try to help you answer your questions. We have questions too. And to get you started practically on, on the next steps of, of your spiritual journey with God. So that's one way you could respond. But then second, maybe you do know God already and you do trust God, but you're finding yourself afraid and stressed and worried. Well, then maybe the response for you is, which are you spending more time on? Watching the news, worrying about what might happen, focusing on the storm out there? Or are you spending more time focusing on the one who is our refuge in the storm? If you're doing the first, then God is inviting you through today's psalm to do the second. So how about making more time each day to talk to God, to think about God, to, to read God's word, to read the psalms, or to read a book about God, like maybe uh, A.W. Tozer's classic Knowledge of the Holy, or A.W., or sorry, uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God a book that will focus you and remind you of what our God is like. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the psalm which calls us to a faith which is greater than most of us have. But that's what we expect from your word. We, so we thank you that your word reminds us of who you are. And it calls us to put our trust in you afresh. And I pray for each one of us, for whatever that looks like, that you would fill our imaginations with yourself, that you would open up our hearts to see you more so that we'll experience less fear, that we'll know your peace, and that we'll have the courage to be your hands and feet and be a blessing to those around us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we... Um, 